the Dorkfest has changed. I'm not on that net. I feel it in the podcast. I'm not on the high. I feel it in the Zoom. I'm not that net, really. I smell it on the dorks. Much that once was is lost, for none now live who remember it. Luckily, all good stories deserve embellishment, and we are here to do just that, just as soon as we welcome you back once again to another episode of Dorkfest, the podcast. It's great to have you here with us, as always, and thanks again for stopping by to hear us dork out about our favorite stuff. I'd like to mention here at the top, and while we still have your attention, that we greatly appreciate your time and encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, if you haven't already, through whatever means you listen to your podcasts, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. Take your pick, your favorite, and we'd love to keep in touch with you through our Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast. Check us out. As always, we've got a fun-packed episode ahead of us today, but before we delve too greedily and too deep into the enchanting and enthralling world of Middle-earth, let's introduce our fellowship for this episode. I'm Gabe Freemuth, and I'll be the steward of this particular podcast today, and luckily, authority is not given me to deny the return of the dorks. First, we should see the head of our order. He is both wise and powerful. It's Dan. Smoke rises from the mountain of doom. The hour grows late, and we have ridden to Isengard seeking your counsel. I was just wondering when uh, Gabe, the moderator, exchanged reason for madness. But actually, I think it's probably all of us who have exchanged reason for madness in allowing a Lord of the Rings podcast to take place. No, no, no. This, seriously, though, though, this should be fun. So you have chosen death. <laughs> Starting off on a real fun note here. Uh, good to have you, Dan. Next, from a place of fabled hospitality, boasting roaring fires, malt beer, and red meat off the bone. But I don't say these things lightly, of course, because nobody tosses a Josh. Here's one dork you won't ensnare so easily. I have the eyes of a hawk and the ears of a fox. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to indulging in all things John Reese davies with you guys tonight, but especially with Josh. And finally, a learned man of letters and languages from Oxford, owner of the hand that wrote the Red Book of Westmarch, everybody knows Jay R.R. Tolkien. Glad to be here, Gabe, and, and I got to tell you, if you haven't done so already, you should break out some of that old Toby, because this is going to be a podcast to remember. I know you've run out. You've smoked too much, Pip. It's great to be here with you, as always, as ever, forever, dorks. Today is our 111th podcast, so we thought we'd celebrate properly by taking long, swooping wide shots of expansive fantasy vistas, riding mythical horses and reforging ancient swords, all in service of getting the One Ring back to the mountain where it was made, and only there can be unmade. It's time for a Middle-Earth Dorkfest, the podcast. We'll, of course, be focusing mostly on the Lord of the Rings film series from Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Philip Boyens today. Uh, but before that, just a brief history lesson bringing us all up to speed. J.R.R. Tolkien... John Ronald Rule Tolkien, for those curious, born in 1892, was an avid reader by four and soon thereafter a fluent writer. He's an orphan by age 12, an officer in the British Army, fighting in World War I by age 23, and while recuperating from illness during the last years of the war, began putting the first words of what would be part of the world of Middle-earth to come on paper. Tolkien would stake his life's work in mythology, particularly Norse mythology, classic and epic poems like Beowulf, and linguistics. And years later, in 1937, as a professor at Pembroke College, 
Tolkien published what would come to be known as his first full Middle-earth work, The Hobbit. It wasn't that at the time. It was a children's book, sort of, for his kids. But the tale grew in the telling, and the six volumes, and ultimately three books that would collectively be titled The Lord of the Rings, were written between 1937 and 1949, and The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King were published between 1954 and 55. Years later, after these works more or less redefined and informed modern fantasy for decades after their publication, there was an up-and-coming director from New Zealand with three small movies under his belt to that date who would try to get a film adaptation of The Lord of the Rings off the ground, pitching it around and changing its scope until, finally, Peter Jackson and company, Wingnut Films, among others, started production on three movies filmed simultaneously. The film adaptations of 2001's The Fellowship of the Ring, 2002's The Two Towers, and 2003's The Return of the King saw billions in total box office, won over a dozen Academy Awards collectively, 11 of them won solely by The Return of the King. These are grand movies, regardless of their other accolades. They're huge in scale and theme. They're perfectly cast, scored, and put together by an incredible team that brought a beloved classic to new life. And obviously, I'm a bit of a fan. So understatement aside, before we really start to get the celebration of Middle Earth underway, I want to let the rest of the dorks warm up a bit here too. So to start us off on our dorky fellowship today, our warm-up question. Gentlemen, let's make a fellowship of the Dorkfest. We're going to use characters from the rest of our Dorkfest extended universe, obviously none from uh, the one we're about to talk about today, but we're going to fill out a dorky equivalent of the Fellowship of the Ring by groups. I'm going to start off choosing our Gandalf equivalent. Jordan is going to choose our Hobbits. Dan is going to choose our Aragorn and Boromir stand-ins. And Josh will round us out with his picks for our Legolas and Gimli. So to get us going, some obvious choices, some less obvious choices, and I thought I'd uh, have a little bit of fun. And our Gandalf is going to be Henry Jones Sr. There was uh, an early rumor that Sean Connery was courted for the role of Gandalf. And while we can all imagine what that would have been, I'm certain we all agree that landing Ian McKellen was the ultimately right choice. But we can always think about what would have been. And Henry Jones even sort of gets to touch the other side and come back himself, much like uh, our hero Gandalf in this sense here. So we'll be led by um, a man who hates the rats. Henry Jones Sr., and hopefully there'll be few as we're crossing the mountains and be they misty or otherwise. Jordan, I pass it to you. Who you got for our hobbits is? So for the hobbits, you know, I, I, I was obviously thinking, you know, in terms of a group. And originally I was thinking, okay, maybe they would cross across franchises. Uh, but um, it, it didn't take too long to, to come to an answer that I was actually really, really pleased with. Because the thing with the Hobbits is that they're kind of unconventional heroes. Um, they're misfits of a certain type. Um, and with that in mind, and also this was slightly helped by the fact that my wife and I just finished rewatching this series, for our Hobbits, I'm going to be selecting the group of young children from Stranger Things. So specifically in the role of Frodo, we will have Will Byers. Um, nice little connection there between being stabbed by a ring wraith and then also being you know caught in the upside down uh mike wheeler will be samwise peregrine took that'll be played by dustin henderson i feel like pippin is more of the goofball which fit, fit well with dustin um and then rounding out the the field would be lucas sinclair um as mary Brandybook. and a quick shout out to my wife as well because she reminded me that there's a scene at the very end of the first season of stranger things where 
the, you know, the rest of the kids are coming in and seeing Will after he's been rescued from the Upside Down. And it very much does kind of have echoes of that scene in Rivendell where the hobbits rush in to see Frodo after he's been saved. So the Stranger Things kids will be playing the role of the hobbits. Again, uh, Will Byers for Frodo, Mike Wheeler for Samwise, uh, Dustin Henderson for Pippin, and Lucas Sinclair for Mary Brandybuck. That what a great choice and very nicely cast within the group. You get to do a little casting within the established group there too. It's a, I think a really great combo and I especially like making Mike the Samwise sort of the one who's trying to stick by his buddy. It's a great, uh, great parallel there. And now I'm thinking about you know, one of those kids, how they'd fare in Rohan and Gondor, respectively, too. We get to think about their journeys going that way. And uh, you also, in season two, have Sean Astin, the OG Samwise, in, in Stranger Things. So all sorts of connections. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And uh, no spoilers meant for anybody who saw it, but that maybe doesn't end as well for him as it did for Sam in Middle-earth. But um, we'll talk about that on another podcast. Dan, you yeah. have... Uh, yeah, I know, poor guy. Uh, Dan, you have the men. You have the world of men. So tell us who's going to be... Amen. Well, first of all, I just appreciate you not giving me the hobbits so that I could not screw up the difference between Frodo and Bilbo one more time, or at least one fewer time on this podcast than I already am probably going to do. So I get, I get the world of men. And so we'll start with Aragorn. And I, I don't know that my selections are overly creative, but when I look at Aragorn, first of all, so I, it's a character who starts off as not much, but is greater than he at first appears and obviously becomes greater than, than his beginnings. And then physically, he's a rather scruffy character. So who is scruffy in the Dorkfest expanded universe? It's Han Solo. And I think that works out pretty well because Han Solo is a, a smuggler, you know, kind of drifter type who, you know, becomes Captain Solo, big part of the Rebel Alliance. And we know that Aragorn you know, ends up returning as the king. So, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen the third movie yet. So, Han Solo is is Aragorn. And then and then for Boromir, you know, I, I wanted somebody who was conflicted, somebody who's not perfect, because that's what Boromir is. He represents us, you know, whichever way the wind is blowing, you know, he gets pulled to the ring, but then, you know, realizes the error of his ways. And so, in sticking with the Han Solo theme of my men's selection, I will cast Lando Calrissian as Boromir because I thought that all, you know, Lando was a bit of a conflicted character. Like he didn't necessarily have a choice when Darth Vader and company, you know, showed up at Cloud City. He knew it wasn't exactly the right move, but it was maybe the only move, but he tries to kind of like, you know, tuck tail and, and make amends in the end. And that's, you know, what ultimately sort of befalls Boromir as well. So uh, Han Solo will be our Aragorn and Lando Calrissian will be our Boromir. By my life or death, I can protect you, kid. I will. I got a part of me is happy. I thought you were going to pull a Han and Chewie thing, and I, I was going to have a bit of a problem if we were going to be killing Chewie off in the first movie here. That's not to say that I'm fine with us now apparently killing Lando off in the first movie here, but at least it's not Chewie. You know, Rise of Skywalker made that mistake and undid it in five minutes. So, Lando's not a system. He's a dead guy. He's a steward of Gondor. <laughs> Round us out, Josh. For our Legolas and Gimli, who you got? This is working out perfectly. We've got four different franchises. So for Legolas and Gimli, I knew I needed a guy with a beard and a guy who could shoot a bow and arrow. So I'm going with Robin Hood and Little John 
but I'm going with Robin Hood and Little John as portrayed by Jean-Luc Picard and Will Riker in the Star Trek Next Generation episode, Cupid. I just can't stop giggling. I need no just, further explanation. No, there's none. I just, I mean, I was, I was nodding when you said Robin Hood and Little John. I was like, oh, that's a good, that's a good twosome to sort of pair off here and, and have that rivalry. And now you've just added a whole other layer by having this be the holodeck displaced versions of the command yeah. staff of the I started, I started thinking of like, well, there's the Disney version and there's like, ugh, Kevin Costner. I can't possibly choose that one. Honestly, part and of me like, thought you were going that way. Like, I mean, I could stay Errol Flynn, but I, I've honestly never seen that movie. So, like, that doesn't feel very honest either. And then Gene Roddenberry smiled down upon me and graced me with this idea. Does that make Q Sauron? Something like that. Okay. Does this mean that we get to shrink Will Riker down to dwarf size? Because that would be hilarious. Yeah, but he's going to be lugging around that trombone instead of an axe. <laughs> Imagine him trying to get that leg up to up onto that console if he's if he's a dwarf size. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the this is the podcast right here is just using the Enterprise D crew to recast Lord of the Rings. This is and you know I've got a secondary thought here, top notch casting, and just a, a quick thought from each of you here. Now that we have this fellowship, I'll recap it real quick. Leading our fellowship here is uh, Henry Jones Sr. as our Gandalf. Our hobbits are played by the Stranger Things kids. We have Han Solo as Aragorn, Lando Calrissian as Boromir, Robin Hood and Little John as Legolas and Gimli, but as portrayed by Jean-Luc Picard and Will Riker. Well, now that we have this merry band, um, before we move on, any uh, quick thoughts as to where they could possibly be headed on their quest? I, I think I'd like to see this nine-man unit make a make a trek to a flea market. I think that this group could really do some damage at a flea market. I think they know history, and I think they understand valuables. And when it comes to some haggling, I think we've got some muscle, and I think we've got some wits. I think this this group could really clean up at a flea market. Kind of on a similar note, I noticed that you know, you've got a real wide array of characters. And I feel like I feel like this group needs some some sort of like icebreaker endeavor sort of thing. Like maybe they go to an escape room or something. I don't know. I feel like they need some sort of like getting to know each other little pre adventure to their trip to Mordor. So maybe they go to an escape room or or, or maybe one of those axe throwing things. Riker, Riker could be good at that. I was going to send them to Tagus 3. They really do had a party back in those days. Phenomenal plans and thoughts completely. As I, The only thing I got is we, there's a lot of experience and talent with the paranormal or just the unusual even in this group. So I, I think I want to see these guys become like an auxiliary Ghostbusters force. We're going to send them to New York and we're going to pile them all into Ecto-2 and uh, have them be a backup squad. Back off, man. I'm a hobbit. Excellent work, all, uh, from these most excellent and admirable of dorks. Hobbits. No, dorks. We come back to the dork fest now at the turn of the tide as we get to charge into the one-point question. No more dawdling. Into the meat of it. Guys, who is your favorite character? And you know what else? Who is the best character? Josh, you want to start us off here? Gladly, Gabe. Uh, my favorite character in 
the whole Middle Earth franchise is Gandalf the Grey. Emphasis on the Grey. Um, here, here, yeah. We get to spend the entire book of The Hobbit with Gandalf the Grey, and for all of Gandalf's um, adventures in Fellowship of the Ring, he's the Grey, and that's when we're introduced to him. I feel like that look is just more suitable for the sort of earthy, you know, wizard, but like also common man, you know, not as high and mighty. Gandalf the White certainly seems a little bit more hoity-toity. Also, I've said this before on when we've talked about Fellowship of the Ring on the podcast, that Gandalf's sacrifice in Fellowship of the Ring was was really the moment, because I, I saw that movie knowing nothing about any Middle Earth anything, and that was an incredible moment on the screen for me. And I, I did feel it a little slightly cheapened later on in the next two movies when Gandalf the White comes back. Certainly it's great having Ian McKellen and Gandalf the White, the character, for the second and third books and second and third movies. But, but I always did feel like it, it, it lessened the stakes somewhat for those last two installments. So, uh, the first place I always go to for my favorite character is Gandalf the Grey. It's an excellent first response. I mean, it's, it's one of the best places to go. You're right. Ian McKellen is, I mean, one of the best parts of this movie, I mean, let alone the entire Middle Earth franchise, because you're right, we get to see, I mean, one of the best parts of the, <laughs> the rather disappointing Hobbits uh, prequel trilogy, one of the best parts of that is Gandalf the Grey. We just get more of him. And, you know, I mean, in a sense, I get what you're saying that the, the sacrifice in fellowship is maybe rendered a little less meaningful because of his return, but they don't ever get, I mean, you're right. There is something singular absolutely about Gandalf the gray. He's friendlier. He's a little more of a, of a buddy. I think he, yeah, as you say, that sort of wandering traveler um, with somebody who can blend in and sort of work behind the scenes is different from the, the sort of necessity of Gandalf the white, who, when he comes back, he doesn't have time for any of that stuff anymore. He's got to be, he's, just, he's not the same guy. He's got to be a little more, um, strategic, more of the general. He can't, he's got to take more of an active role. That's definitely why Gandalf Grey, I think, is a, a more true Gandalf character, it feels like. Well, and Gabe, you know, what you're saying there makes me think of, obviously, you know, we're talking here not only about the character of Gandalf the Grey, but then also the performance by Ian McKellen. And you have, you know, I think you have two examples there of just how impressive that performance is. One, with what you were just saying a second ago, Gabe, is you have pretty much a new character created by Ian McKellen in Gandalf the White. It's not the same Gandalf. It's not like, oh, he's just back. It's a different character. You're right. He's not as relatable in a certain sense. He's more business. He's, I think that he knows that the stakes are higher for him in that, in, 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 in that role as Gandalf the White. But then also, Josh, to what you were saying with that sacrifice scene, I mean, let's keep in mind that Gandalf the Grey may very well be the most memorable thing about Fellowship of the Ring in terms of the movie. And that's, and that's definitely debatable, but I, but I think it's an arguable take. And that comes along with the understanding that he's not there pretty much for the second half of the film, right? So to, to be able to develop that sort of connection, not only with the other characters in the film, but then also with us as the audience, I think speaks to that just, you know, incredible performance by Ian McKellen. And definitely why I think this conversation really couldn't have started any other way than talking about Gandalf the Grey. He's also got some of the best uh, quotes uh, in in the movie in Moria when he's talking to to Frodo. Gabe, you've referenced this a few times. All all we can 
chooses what to do with the time that is given to us is profound. I love his closing line in The Hobbit. You're a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I'm very fond of you, but you're only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. Such perspective uh, lent to, to, to this adventure that they've all just been on. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not in love with the way it's delivered in, at the end of the movie, to, to be honest. I think it's better in the book. Um, but like f- from his introduction in The Hobbit with the whole diatribe about what good morning means, I mean, he is profound and silly all, all at the same time. Yeah. And you have that with, you know, his introduction to Frodo in Fellowship, you know, wizard never being late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And on that, too, it, it, it even comes out in terms of Ian McCallum's performance, not only with lines, but then also just with sounds. I, I, I love and, and always laugh at this scene when he hits his head on the chandelier in, in the very beginning of it. Like, even just like that noise is so memorable. And it speaks to the, the sort of goofiness almost of his character. But I think that's what makes Gandalf the Grey infinitely more relatable to an extent, maybe, than get off the white. No one has ever uttered a better good gracious than Ian McKellen as Gandalf. Yeah, he is just such a complete... I mean, you're so right about the, the sound, Jordan, and anybody who's spent too much time on the, on the bonus material of these movies on, uh, in DVD form is happily going to, tell, to point out to us that, uh, yeah, that moment with Ian McKellen striking his head on the low wall is a blooper, effectively, that they just decided to keep in. Ian McKellen turned too fast and actually hit his head and kept rolling because he's a consummate professional and is like quite literally embodying Gandalf. It is, it's as good a performance as I think any we've talked about on, on this podcast. I know we engage on a lot of hot takes and hyperbole, but that one feels, that one feels pretty spot on. I think it's a testament, too, to the fact that Gandalf's loss feels like a real loss, even though to that point of it, we only spend half a movie with him. It's also a testament to the fact that Fellowship is a long first movie, because even though having we've only spent half a movie with Gandalf, we've spent about 90 minutes with him to that point. But still, he makes such an impact, uh, and he's such, I think, an important part of starting to guide us into the world of Middle-earth from a smaller person's perspective, say, as you point out, Josh. Um, I would just like to quickly chime in here quickly on the Gandalf front, and, and I guess maybe speak up a little bit for Gandalf the White, who I think think is kind of unfairly being cast aside here. I, I completely agree. Gandalf the Grey is awesome. His his entrance is awesome. Jordy, you referenced, you know, his opening line. Josh, the sacrifice in the minds of Moria is awesome. And he knows when they go down there, he knows exactly what they're going to find. And he knows exactly what it's going to mean. And he says, you know, let the ring bearer decide. And when he says that, Gandalf says, yeah, that's okay. That's what we're going to do even though he knows exactly what it means. But, I mean, Gandalf the White gets plenty of awesome moments as well. I particularly enjoy Gandalf, the, the sort of field general at, at Gondor. You know, when the steward of Gondor has completely lost his mind and is, retreat, retreat, Gandalf's like, no, 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 hold your ground. We stand and we fight. And he's, you know, he's giving directional orders to the army and all that kind of stuff. Not only is he giving orders, though, but he's rolled up his sleeves and he's at the front of the lines as well. But, so he's got that business-like side to him, but he also has this human side. And one of the best scenes in the entire trilogy is Gandalf and Pippin 
talking about the white shores. And I tell you what, I mean, if, if that scene doesn't make you feel something, then I don't know what scene in that trilogy is going to make you feel anything. And it's, it really is accentuated by Pippin's performance as well, Billy Boyd's performance, particularly Gandalf finishes talking about, you know, kind of what's next and, and he doesn't say the word death, but we know that's, that's what it means. And Pip knows exactly what he's talking about. And then there's the crash at the door and you see Pippin kind of close his eyes and he clenches his blade. And it's like, okay, like he doesn't think he knows this is going to be it. Now it doesn't end up, end up being it, but that's, that's where he's at. And, and that's, that's Gandalf's performance. That's, that's his contribution. So like Josh, I appreciate your take about Gandalf the Grey. And yes, full disclosure, I had not read the books before seeing the movies Josh had not, Jordan, I don't think you had. So like, yeah, when Gandalf goes down there in Fellowship, we think that's it. And then Two Towers begins and, and we realize that's not it for Gandalf. And that's great because Ian McKellen is phenomenal. But yeah, I think he gets a lot to do and, and more, I think just to say Gandalf as the whole, I think is a great character. My Gandalf is probably my favorite character too, but just to be different, I'm going to say that my favorite character is Boromir and it's because he represents that which really we all are. And that is to say men and human, and we are at fault. You know, Boromir represents the emotion and the sort of primal nature of trying to rid this evil, but also, you know, Boromir and and Gondor have suffered, and he sees a potential out to this. No, wait a minute, hang on a second. We have the Ring of Power. We're bringing it to Gondor, so I don't have to watch my people suffer any longer. You're telling us we can be, the, you know, the strongest, baddest, toughest kid in town? I'm kind of all about that. Let's do that. And he sort of gets cast as time goes along as an enemy. I mean, yes, like he legitimately tries to kill Frodo and take the ring from him comes to his senses and sees the error of his ways. But even before then, you get an insight into his humanity. And let's go back to, they exit the mines of Moria and we've just lost Gandalf and the hobbits. I mean, this is really their first taste of what this whole adventure is, is potentially all about. And that's going to mean loss. It's Aragorn who says, we got to get moving. Let's keep going. And it's Boromir who says, give them a minute for pity's sake. He understands the humanity of this. He understands the loss that they've incurred. And I, I just think the way he represents a lot of us in the viewing audience, characters you can relate to, I, all, I really enjoy. I think they, they speak to our humanity. And you look at him and you're like, boy, that's a character that's far from perfect, but it's a character that we can relate to because we all of us are a whole lot far from perfect. And, and Boromir's sacrifice in the end is tremendous and he saves mary and he saves pippin he really only gets to shine in the one movie i also really always enjoy sean bean so that helps too but yeah so yeah yeah let's let's give some love to boromir yeah dan that's what i was going to say about sean bean is a tremendous actor and so uh boromir really leaps off the screen in, in fellowship because of his performance um this this whole you know story is is largely about hobbits i feel like we need to start talking about hobbits which hobbit is your favorite it's samwise and 
each watch makes it easier and easier to say. And I think as I'm saying that, I think I have soft spots for Mary and Pip. And I think, and maybe it's because there's just so much screen time. I think Frodo actually might be my least favorite, which is not to say that I don't enjoy the performance, but I think just out of all of them, I, I, I think he lands my least favorite. But Sam, Samwise is the one that with each rewatch of this trilogy of films, you just connect with him more and more and more. And, you know, to Dan, to what you were saying with Boromir, I think Samwise is infinitely relatable in the sense that you have this person who's a gardener, right? Like that, that's what he does. And, and he's thrust into this adventure, but he also, he cares just so, so deeply. And, and, and I know that, I know that we're moving towards the hobbits, but just one last thing that I wanted to say about Boromir on that. And I think it's connected, you know, the Dan to what you were saying, the emotional swings that you go on with Boromir are just so compelling, right? You, you think that he's short-sighted, he's selfish, but then you also have that scene right after he's realized what he's done in trying to kill Frodo. And that's a moment in which he's very innocent and terrified and almost childlike. So I, I think that's just, you know, to say quickly, one of the things that I think is great about Boromir's performance. But but back to The Hobbits, again, I, I think Sean Astin's performance as Samwise is is just excellent. He's, he's comedic, he's relatable, he's caring. I mean, he's just, he is what a hobbit is. Yeah, I agree. Sam's my favorite. Jordan, you said, you know, Sam's a gardener on a more, you know, fundamental level. Sam's not the guy. Sam is the guy the guy counts on. And more often in life, that's where most of us end up. We are not usually the most important person in whatever, you know, work or school or athletic or, you know, social situation we are in. We are trying to be that. But it feels really good when you can be the guy that the guy counts on. You know, I, I and I feel like Sam really does that great. I do appreciate that, Josh, and I agree with that sentiment, though I do find it slightly ironic coming from you, who is like the person who is the great person at Dorkfests. So you are you are both the great one and then also the one who the person counts on. It's the only thing. It's, it's the only thing that you could maybe say that to me about. It maybe was golf, but now Eamon, our other cousin, is probably better than me at that too. So, But doesn't, I mean, Frodo constantly tries to make Sam feel like he is maybe not the guy, but at least the guy's equal, right? They're, you know, this is after the fellowship has been broken and, and Sam and Frodo are together and Sam's, you know, talking about how, you know, do you think they'll, they'll tell stories of, of us, you know, eventually. And, you know, Sam kind of outlines, I want to hear the one about Frodo in the ring and his great adventure. And, you know, Frodo turns around and says, I, I'd like to hear the one about, about Sam. That's, that's the story that I want to hear. And then at the, at the very end of Return of the King, when Frodo goes off with the elves and he, you know, he gives the book to Sam and the last pages are for you as if to say like, like Sam, you're you're going to have adventures that are are just as great as as the adventures that that I've had that we've had together, and um and and you don't it's it's just a good reminder that you don't get there by yourself, right? We we establish many many times that Frodo has to be the one to take the ring, and in the end, it's Sam that says, "I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you," and so that's that's what I'm going to do, and I feel like. Like there's got to be an internet meme out there somewhere 
And if not, like we'll get on that too sweet, but it's the idea of like, find yourself someone who looks at you the way that Sam looks at Frodo. Like that relationship there is so genuine. And, and Sam, to his credit, I mean, Frodo gets upset at him. He gets short with him. He eventually dismisses him because of Gollum's influence. But Sam all the while kind of recognizes, even in those moments, this is not the person who this person truly is. And so he he turns around and he's always there for him. And I mean, I think ultimately what this story is about, or at least what I take away from this is that this is just a story of friendship and of camaraderie and that no matter how hard things are, no matter how difficult the road gets, no matter what you encounter, that you need people like that around you. And if you have those people, then you can accomplish anything. You can be the smallest person and you can take the ring of power and you can throw it into the fires of Mount Doom and you can rid the world of evil. If you, but you can't do it by yourself if you have these people around you. And, and that's where I want to I wanna dovetail the conversation quickly to what I think is the best character. Because Gabe, that was originally the, the second part of, of your question. And I think that's where this character falters is because this character didn't have somebody else. And that's Gollum. Smeagol, Gollum, whatever it is. Like, I think he's the best character. I, by far the most fascinating to me particularly when you get to Return of the King and you see how he even came into possession of the ring, right? Fellowship, we get that scene where it's, you know, it, it, it fell into the most unlikely of hands, a hobbit, and we see the hand dig into the sand and pull out the ring. And at the time, it's like, oh, well, that, that's obviously Smeagol Gollum. But then Return of the King, no, 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 that was, the guy, that was the guy he was fishing with. And so the only way Smeagol ends up with the ring is he kills the guy. And, he, and like literally kills him right away. Like he, he succumbed to the ring in an, in an absolute instant, which tells you the fortitude also that Frodo had to be able to endure all that he did early on. And, and, and Sam too, and, and the other hobbits to be able to endure all that. But I mean, the, the, the trials and tribulations for, for Smeagol and then the juxtaposition we get in Two Towers and Return of the King between Smeagol and Gollum. It's a character that you that you fear. It's a character that you feel pity for. Like there's, there's this whole range of emotions that you have for this character who ultimately gets what he wants in the end. And that is, he gets the ring back and it, and it costs him his life. But you sort of feel like, okay, yay, he's gone. But also like, Ugh, like he he was just like us, like any of us who succumbed to the power of the ring. You know, Dan, I think that, you know, talking about Gollum also speaks to another, I think, larger theme in this. And I think, you know, what you said about friendships and relationships is definitely a key theme in that sense of that. But But I think also it speaks to the idea that everyone or everything has a role that is going to be played. And I think Gandalf even has a line that kind of speaks to that effect. And, and that you kind of have to tread lightly because you don't know what that role is that is going to be played or who it's going to be played by. Um, and ultimately that scene that you're referring to at the end of Return of the King, you know, that like 
Gollum had to play that role. He had to play the role that he did in order for the result to be what it was. I'll be honest. I had kind of like, I was thinking more about like the traditional fellowship in terms of best and favorite characters and Gollum very much slipped my mind, but I think you're, you're absolutely right on Josh kind of similar to the point that you made, you brought up the question of the, the best hobbits. We haven't talked about the elves at all. Um, just like to quickly throw it out there. Who, who are some of your favorite or your best elves? Me, personally speaking, as the moderator, I, uh, I always liked Haldir, the Lothlorien sort of lieutenant that they uh, encounter in Fellowship and then who comes to try and bail him out in Two Towers and then ultimately gives his life for the cause. In, in another little striking moment, because, you know, elves are supposedly immortal and then there's, you know, just a couple dozen of them dead there on Helm's Deep and it's just a tragic thing. But, yeah, Haldir's got, you know, 10, 15 total minutes of screen time, but um, I always thought that was a that was a cool turn. I think that's the right answer, though, Gabe. Well, I don't know. I mean, we're, we've got Arwen, we've got Elrond, we've got Galadriel. I mean, there's a there's a whole bunch. I just went right for the not the bottom of the barrel, but I went for almost a discount band first. Yeah, I think Galadriel is probably the only other legitimate option for for best elf. The, the elves, to, to be honest, have never been my favorite part of these movies. Uh, I am much more of a dwarf guy. Gimli is in the favorite character category. He gets used a lot for comic relief in the movie. John Rhys-Davies plays that great. But, you know, Gimli also, you know, as a warrior, you know, kicks some serious behind, which is fun to see. But in in The Hobbit, you know, there's tons of dwarfs in that. And, and Balin was always a, a dwarf that I like from The Hobbit. No love for Legolas? Nobody, nobody's a Legolas fan? I will I will admit that the first time seeing the movies, I thought, oh, that guy's cool. Like he he kicks some serious, you know what? But then upon further views, that's pretty much all he does. Uh, Josh is right. Like Gimli provides some comic relief, and Gimli provides some humanity as well. Legolas doesn't do much, in my opinion, except some CGI bow and arrow tricks that upon further watches don't age quite as well 20 years after these movies release. I kind of like the, I mean, there may only be two scenes in the whole trilogy where we get a little pushback from Legolas. I'm thinking of before the battle at Helm's Deep, right, Gabe? Um, Where Aragorn's trying to pump everybody up and Legolas Legolas is like, what are you talking about? Like, they're going to die. This is like, they're going to make their stand here and they don't know it, but they're going to die. It's finally there where you get to see a little bit of, they have pointed ears, but they, they come across almost Vulcan-esque in terms of not wanting to show too much emotion and, and for the cause and that kind of stuff. But it's nice to see him show a little pushback. I, I just don't think we see enough of it to make Legolas, you know, an engaging character. I, I think he really just amounts... To, to little more than than kind of a, a video game kind of kick ass kind of hero type. And I'm glad you brought up Helm's Deep because that reminded me of probably my favorite character in the world of men, and that's Theoden, King of Rohan. He's got some really great lines uh, in Two Towers. What can men do against such reckless eight? And then in Return of the King, he's got a great you know fire up the troops speech before they charge on Minas Tirith. And he is probably, I, I feel like I'm talking a lot about stakes in this podcast and in a few others. He's one that, that that falls in that battle. One of the only main characters in the final two movies that does bite the dust. 
Uh, so I think Theoden is, is a tremendous character. I completely agree there, Josh. Um, Bernard Hill is is so good at the desperation of Theoden and, and sort of going back and forth between trying to embrace this role as a leader of men he's been given, even in a minor fashion, next to Aragorn, who's increasingly stepping into his role at the same time. But yeah, that speech in Return of the King gets me every time. It's it's a heck of a rousing thing. And just to speak to your to Legolas real quick, and I can't believe I'm doing this, but I feel I need to defend Legolas real quick because, yeah, he's probably, given the Fellowship characters, the, the least used and overall flattest of them, but I think he is a necessary perspective. Uh, you know, at this point in the story, he's still an elf. He's a young elf, but that still means he's like two or 3,000 years old. And, you know, he's, I, I think he, we need sort of a steady, reliable hand to help folks get us out of a jam and I just also think that as a grouping of characters, the Aragorn Legolas Gimli coalition that takes us through much of the two towers is still a joy to watch. It's a hugely accomplished bunch of guys and they all, I mean, that's sort of a minor of a minor plot line going on too, is the, the trust that those three begin with starting from the end of fellowship is sort of the remaining batch. They're resolved to go after Merry and Pippin. We will not abandon them to torment and death. And then, yeah, sort of the, the cracks that start to show as the mission continues, as you bring up, Dan, uh, Legolas's hesitance being like, they're, they're all going to die, and we're going to talk in Elvish until you get angry enough to shout in English and tell everybody what it was we were talking about here. Yeah, Legolas is probably the, the overall flattest, but um, we're given the least to do. But I think his, his occasional perspective is um, helpful, even if pretty much the rest of the time that if it doesn't involve a bow and arrow, it kind of involves him staring off into the distance and saying something profound or ominous. So, uh, you know, there's, there's something to that, too. Yeah, but I think you make a really good point about, you know, sort of that triumvirate of Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn in that each of them, the group is greater than each of them individually, both in terms of performance and then also in terms of level of favoriteness of characters. That's probably most profoundly recognized with the character of Legolas, but I think it's a statement that's probably true with the other two as well. The, the running competition between Legolas and Gimli counting how many orcs they kill is, 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 is a nice fun thing that Legolas gets to do. But it's kind of only, you know, in conjunction with Gimli. Well, and I think that works because when it's the Fellowship, it's the nine of them, Gandalf is, is effectively in charge. But then when the Fellowship is broken and those three guys head out, Aragorn is effectively in charge. And so now Legolas and Gimli can kind of bond in the, okay, that, that's sort of when their, their little uh, fallen enemies body count competition sort of gets underway. Yeah, and, I, and I, don't, I don't mean to like make it sound like I don't enjoy Legolas. I just think that there are so many other characters that have so much more going on that it makes a character like that seem flat. And, and the last character that I want to, give a nod to, and I suppose it should come as no surprise for a series of books written, as Gabe alluded at the top, in the 1950s, that there aren't a a swath of strong female characters in this movie trilogy. But Eowyn is phenomenal. And Eowyn's good in Two Towers, but she is badass in Return of the King. I mean, yes, she ultimately gets to kill the Witch King, and that scene is friggin' awesome. No no man can, well, good for you. I'm not a man. Like, awesome. And But even, you know, even before that, it's like she clearly wants to do more than 
their society and their culture is permitting her to do. And that's in Middle Earth, and that's right here, right now, in the U.S. in 2021. Like, you're, you're watching this character not say it, but it's clear, like, I can do more. Like, give me a sword. Like, I can help out. It's kind of like, know your role, stick over there, blah, blah, blah. You know, but then all of a sudden when Mary's going to get left behind, he gets scooped up and stick with me. And, you know, the two of them together, you know, in that battle scene are, are awesome. And yeah, I mean, she, she gets that, that big moment to, to take out the Witch King. And, and I think that was a real nice culmination to a character that had slowly but surely built up more and more and more. Um, I, I thought she was the real pleasant surprise in in Rohan. Uh, Thayad and Josh, you're, you're right. Awesome. And I love Carl Urban. I don't know why, because he's hardly ever given anything to do and never more on display than in Lord of the Rings, where he basically just wears that helmet and looks, you know, longingly into battle action and occasionally opens his mouth as if to scream but doesn't really get anything to do. I still like him, but yeah, between Eowyn and Theoden, that's that's the best that comes out of out of Rohan. Yeah, I think we like uh, Amor because of Carl Urban. It's not the, not necessarily the other way around. Yeah, uh, I agree. Carl Urban is always a, just an absolute treat to have on board something. And, and you're completely right about Eowyn as well. Um, Miranda Otto deserves all credit for such a wonderful performance she put together. And yeah, all leading up to that the moment when she gets to strike down the Witch King. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, to your point, Dan, I think she's actually, she's pretty out with her desire to do more. I mean, she, you know, Theoden sort of gently chastises her for it because he already knows it, but she's got that one conversation with uh, Aragorn where he asks her, you know, what is it you fear? She says something to the effect of, you know, I, I fear neither death nor pain. I know we're all evacuating Edoras here, but, and her response is that she fears a cage. She fears to be useless while other people go on to, to do things. Um, and Aragorn reassures her that, you know, you're the daughter of kings. I don't, I do not think that will be your fate, but it's true that, I mean, she just, I mean, even Aomer, you know, her brother, theoretically somebody who should be closer to her than anybody is also still kind of, he, he is kind of a head pattern. Like, okay, go ahead, sit down, little sis, you know, men are fighting. I will say, um, I know my dad was never a big Aomer fan here, but even he will give Carl Urban the moment when he finds Eowyn on the battlefield at the end of the war outside uh, the gates of Minas Tirith. And he just got, yeah, he's like roaring with grief. It's, uh, and it is those things. I mean, we're talking about individual characters here, but I think someone alluded to it earlier, Jordan, it might've been you. Um, it's the relationships that we're able to build sort of along the way. And, and not just among the nine, not just among, you've got all these subgroups, you know, you've got the four hobbits, you've got the three heroes here, you've got Eowyn Mary when they go off riding with the Rohirrim, you've got Pippin and Gandalf at uh, Gondor when they go that direction. Then you've got Frodo and Sam and eventually Frodo and Sam and Gollum. Heck, you've got Gollum and Smeagol within himself. It is a lot of these things that I think drives this through. And uh, and you guys have done a, a phenomenal job of pointing out a lot of the best stuff and, and there's a lot of good stuff to come. And I'm thinking maybe we should transition to that before we uh, get, before we delve, I'm just going to keep making this joke, you guys, before we delve too greedily and too deep. So we, we've, got, we've spoken a lot of words here. We've got a lot more to speak in the, as befits, you know, a three-volume trilogy here. So um, we're going to fast forward a bit because I think we're starting to edge toward a, a little of our next topic or we can. So I want to round up question one here by awarding the one-point question to Dan. Dan came out swinging with a lot of good stuff. I know Josh isn't happy, but honestly, 
all Dan had to say, and anybody could have said it, but Dan was the one who said it. All anybody had to say was the name Boromir. Uh, he has been a perennial favorite of mine as well, uh, even before we got the wonderful Sean Bean to jump in on this. And, and I completely agree with the notion of Boromir as a tragic character. He's always been a personal favorite. I think his sacrifices, the character is tragic. Um, his sacrifice is incredible and incredibly portrayed. Dan also, besides that, he stuck up. I liked for Gandalf the White. I might, uh, you know, agree that Gandalf the Grey is the spirit of Gandalf, but I respect the attempt of standing up for Gandalf the White. I liked bringing up Frodo as well, as well as Frodo boosting Sam, as friends do. And Dan was the first to bring up Gollum. So I think just Dan hit a lot of bullet points here. And the first point goes to Dano. Wow. Sounds like a major job. Pretty easy there, Gabe. About a half dozen salient points coming from this side of Middle Earth. We're not getting conquered by any stupid ring or any bunch of orcs. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. The point is very secret and likely the only one I will get tonight. So very safe. <laughs> Moving on to topic two. We ask quite simply here, what are your favorite parts of Middle Earth? Is it a place, a certain scene, or a whole sequence? The music? The Hobbit? Just the whole Hobbit? Is that your favorite part of Middle Earth? Jordan, we're going to go to you. Talk to us. What's your favorite part? I, I do love me some hobbits, and there are two of them that we really should have talked about during Q1 or during our one-point question, seeing as how they are the two major characters in both the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the aforementioned Hobbit. I will jump right in and talk about those two characters. I'm, of course, referring to Bilbo and Frodo Baggins. And, you know, in thinking about this question, I was definitely thinking about places you know, just in terms of, you know, I think that's one of the things that's really so remarkable about these films and, and to a great extent to the books too, is just like the worlds that they create. But I was also thinking about scenes. So two specific scenes that I want to shout out, each of which dealing with those two characters that I just mentioned from Fellowship. One of the scenes that I just love is Bilbo's party at the very, very beginning. I mean, just it's such an unconventional way to kind of begin what is a very tumultuous, adventurous journey of three films with this massive celebration. And it gives you an opportunity to get introduced to each of the different characters. You get that introduction to Gandalf. You also get a little bit of the introduction into Merry and Pippin, but you get the interaction and the relationships of Bilbo right? You have the relationship that Bilbo has with Gandalf. You have kind of the lead in with them, um, you know, relaxing, shall we say, before the, before the party itself. But then you also have the relationship between Frodo and Bilbo. And, you know, that most acutely felt after Bilbo gives his speech and then disappears. And we, the audience, know where he's gone. But by the time Frodo gets back to the house, he doesn't know. So you have this, you know, disconnect between what the audience knows and what Frodo knows. And I think that definitely leads to some sympathy with Frodo. So that's, that, that's just a great scene. I think that scene is beautiful visually. I'm thinking specifically about Gandalf's fireworks, but then also just in terms of that character development that I spoke about, I think that's a wonderful piece of it too. And then a, a second one and Dan sitting in the darkness uh, earlier tonight, you might be able to relate to this scene. Um, and that's the scene at Weathertop. So this is a scene where Frodo gets stabbed by the Witch King, although I guess we don't know him as the Witch King at that point, just one of the ring rakes. But I think it's one of the scenes where you really get the stakes of, of what's going to be, of what these three films are going to hold. You have, you know, so much of 
what makes these films great all present in that scene. You have the visual cinematography of it. I mean, it's just a beautifully shot scene. You also have the location, right, which adds that level of suspense knowing they are up at the top of this place. Getting down is not going to be easy, and Aragorn was there, but he's not there now. You have the music, which is such a huge piece of what makes all these films so great. And then, as I mentioned also, you have the stakes in the sense that our hero, or who we think is going to be our hero and who ultimately ends up being our hero, gets stabbed and seemingly might die. And you start to also get some of the context of what's of what's happening here. I'm thinking specifically about, you know, context of how the ring works and also context of who exactly the ring wraiths are. And we see so much of that through the character of Frodo. And Frodo ultimately grows to be an extremely brave and extremely valiant character, but he isn't that in that scene. He is frightened, he is terrified, and he ultimately puts on the ring, I think, to to see what will happen if I do this. Will I be able to escape if I use this? Because at that point, all he knows is by putting on, he disappears. That's all he knows at that point. So I think, you know, those two scenes specifically are two, what I call them my favorite parts of Middle Earth, not necessarily, but certainly two of my favorite scenes in Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, Jay, I love starting off with Bilbo and Frodo because it is around these two guys. Um, we didn't get to speak much of them in the characters around, but it is around these two guys that the story really starts to spin. You know, were it not for Bilbo was meant to find the ring, therefore Frodo also was meant to have it. And uh, that is an encouraging thought when it comes to our uh, discussions here because they really are, um, they're alike and they're different. You know, Bilbo even has a, sort of an aside with Frodo in, um, well, I guess it's in the extended version for those of you who are so inclined. Um, but he tells Frodo that um, of all his numerous relations, Bilbo tells Frodo that Frodo was the one who showed the most spirit. Notable too, Frodo is you know orphaned at a young age and taken in by his uncle. Tolkien himself, again, orphaned as a, as a young man. So I wonder how much identification there is with, um, there's a lot of Tolkien's own life that comes into these books in some fashion. Uh, Bilbo's trek across the Misty Mountains is, I think, referencing a trip uh, he took as a student you know, while in Switzerland, literally trekking over Misty Mountains. But yeah, I wonder... Um, just the, the Tolkien-Frodo connection there as a, uh, an interesting thing. And, and while we're talking about hobbity places, um, I think we just have to mention the Shire real quick. I mean, is there, is there a more perfect retirement destination or just general living area in all of the Dorkfest extended universe? I mean, the Shire is, you know, it might as well be paradise. It's a simple life, and that's all anybody needs there. No, don't stick your nose into trouble, and no trouble will come to you. Kick back with a good pint and a bit of old Toby. Just a delightful place. And again, all night we're going to be effectively lauding and applauding the production design of these incredible three movies, but especially for, it just looks so natural and earthy and grown over. I mean, it's, it's the gardener's haven as you know, where Sam and all these guys come from. It's, it's a place worth fighting for, for the hobbits. Um, I just think the Shire is an incredible location. You definitely see uh, Bones or Scotty maybe taking shore leave in, in Hobbiton in an Airbnb. I think Scotty in particular would enjoy uh, much that Hobbiton and the Shire countryside has to offer. I just want one of those little hobbit holes with a circular door. That, that's, that's definitely what I want. I want one of those circle just doors. Just the coolest. Yeah. And such nice, cozy houses. Yeah. And Gabe, I'm, I'm glad you brought up production design because that's, that's where I would like to go next. Because to me, that's what I love most about these movies. We have heralded 
Star Wars movies of past and Star Wars movies of present for creating these lived-in universes, these realms that clearly characters have lived in and suffered in and toiled for. And that's exactly what Peter Jackson and company have created here in, in these three Lord of the Rings movies specifically. And I guess it's important that I know when I talk about production design, I'm talking specifically about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. In point of fact, I will not be referencing the Hobbit trilogy at all during the course of this entire podcast. I saw those movies each once. That was more than enough. I have moved on. These other movies, however, are worthy of multiple rewatches. And every time you do, you're going to discover a world that is real, that is lived in, and, and the attention to detail from worn out belt straps, like belts that are tightened to a certain notch on them because that's where they always are tightened. And that's where the belt is, is sort of bent. Like, you, you know, we all have that belt where, okay, I, I, I don't even have to see which hole I'm, I'm putting the, the latch into because it just, it fits into that spot. Like I, I'm thinking of a scene where Aragorn readjusts, you know, the, the belt with his, you know, knife at the side. It's like, it fits so perfectly. And there are a whole lot of close-ups in this movie, right? We've got the ring. Okay, well, the ring goes on your hand. There's a whole lot of close-ups and there's, you know, tight shots of hands being held, but it's, it's fingernails that are worn. It's hands that are dirty. And, and that attention to detail is just so marvelously done in this trilogy. It makes you really believe that the trials and tribulations that we've seen these characters go through, that they, they have, in fact, gone through them and then not had a shower in between movies and here we go now, right? You were all spick and span ready for the next one. Like it's, it's very believable by the time Frodo and Sam get to Mount Doom that, I mean, these guys look like hell because they've literally been through hell. And whether it's the costume design, the production design, the set design, prop department, I mean, all of those people that were involved in making this movie come alive by the way that it looks and it feels all of them to me deserve huge accolades because I think that's in addition to the casting and, and the characters, the way these movies look and feel that, that that is their next strongest suit for me. The item that, that I find the most fun and what I'll say is my favorite part of middle earth that I think illustrates this uh, in, in some way, Dan, is the, the maps of Middle-earth. I love in fantasy stories when you can pour over a map and you have these you know, hand-drawn mountains and forests and rivers and, and the, the trails that each people or group of people take and you know, where cities marked on them. I, I just find that so fun. To, to pour over a map. I, I'm always the guy, you know, when I was a kid on a, on a long road trip, you know, with the Atlas in hand, with my finger following along. And now in, in 2021, I got the GPS open and I'm following the blue dot. And, you know, I, I, I think maps are really cool. And the maps of Middle Earth, how 
the characters use them, but then we also get to, you know, they're just, they're online and you could just pull up map of Middle Earth and kind of cruise around and see, you know, what's in relation to what. The fact that, that these maps were drawn and that they, they use them, they're true to them, really lends to that, that, that realism and presents just a source of fun for me. Google, if you are listening, change your maps font so that it's the Middle Earth font. You know, you'd think, too, that in 2021, they'd have a function that would have, like, a little red line that would, you know, change to, like, a plane or whatever it is. And then, you know, if you go one over water, it would be a dash. It could play a little bit of John Williams in the background at the same time. I was going to say, we, we inherit that love of maps through, uh, that's a, an Indiana Jones connection right there, <laughs> tracing our way through. And it's such a, it is another immersive way to look. I love how both you and Dan are talking about this, Josh, because you're talking sort of two sides of the same die as it were you know i mean you're talking about a, a real micro and these close-ups and a real macro with the pullback to the to the map a way of looking at the entirety of of middle earth and i think that really does help that what we're talking about the authenticity the lived-in feeling of this whether you are yeah it's a close-up on a, a rough hewn you know well-worn glove or, and belt or sword or piece of armor or whether you're yeah somebody's unrolled a map that's itself pretty clearly well worn but this is where our characters are they do this specifically in the extended edition of the fellowship of the ring where they have a different sort of introductory scene after the prologue that galadriel narrates bringing us up to the history of it in the extended edition instead of gandalf's voiceover that um sort of introduces us to hobbiton it's bilbo talking writing in the red book um taking us through as he sort of says various location names, the camera is panning all the way back. So we get to go, we get a real good look at where we are, but it is all in the name of that immersion. And, and I think this is a film series that does this as well as, if not better than any other, um, especially as you guys point out for these three, the, and credit, I just want to drop a few names of Richard Taylor, uh, art director, Dan Hanna, and another production designer, Grant Major. These are the guys who are all part of what a workshop that made so many of these effects, both practical and digital and, you know, costume and, and set decoration, all these things possible, because it is, there's not a frame of these movies, I think, that takes you out of it. If we're talking about favorite parts of these movies, too, I, feel, I would feel remiss if I didn't, you know, go back to when we initially saw these movies and when many of us were still kids. And in thinking about what, you know, probably would have been the favorite thing about them then, and that's obviously the battles. And, and I think that, you know, ultimately, as you watch these movies more and more, the battles are not what stands out most um, as you become older and as you have an older eye looking at it, you know, you you're drawn to the characters as we've already seen, but specifically two, I guess one battle and then one kind of battle scene that I want to point out that are just some of my favorite parts of these three movies um, in terms of the best battle of these three movies, it's Helm's Deep. And for me, it's not really a question. You have the locale there that just makes that such a high stakes battle, but it's also the the setting of it, right? You have the rain, it's at night, and it, it feels, the, the filming of it feels enclosed in that sense that you just feel like it is being pounded upon, pounded upon, pounded upon. And, and you have that offset by, by different things. You have that offset by some of the comic relief that we referenced earlier between Legolas and Gimli. You also have that offset a little bit 
as Haldir and the and some of the elven warriors from Lorien arrive, and and you get the sense of like, okay, well, you know, maybe maybe they're all right. And then ultimately, you have the you know the sun coming over the mountain or coming over the side of the hill at the end of that, and that. I mean, that, that battle, in terms of how it's written and then how what was written was transcribed onto the screen, it was just magnificently, beautifully done. And then the other battle scene, I'll call it, that I wanted to just reference quickly was the March Upon the Black Gate in Return of the King. Specifically, I like Aragorn's speech but I love the end of it. I love when he turns back and just says to everyone there for Frodo. It just ties it all together. It, it, it brings it all back to the beginning. And it reminds everyone, as we referenced several times, that that scene and, and what they were doing in that, was that about saving, saving the world? Yes, to a certain extent it was, but it was also about the people. It was about the people that we cared about. So those two scenes, I think, you know, are, are, are great sort of battle scenes, um, but I think they're great battle scenes because of the depth and complexity beneath them. I also love how uh, Merry and Pippin are the first to follow Aragorn. A nice little triumphant moment for them. And that's a great touch. Great call, Josh. Jay, I just want to follow up on your battle scenes thing. Because, yeah, when I was, you know, uh, 11, 12, 13 watching these things, absolutely that stuff stuck out. And, yeah, well, I've got probably a, a greater, fuller appreciation now at age 30, whatever, that I am. I got to say, I am still just as enthralled with the ebb and flow and, and the effects and the choreography and everything of all these battle scenes. There's still not really a whole lot like them. We have Pirates of the Caribbean movies after this. We have Gladiator before this. We have a host of imitators. but Boy, this one gets just so much about, like, not just large scale, but the, the really personal, small scale, theatrical combat stuff, right? Helm's Deep is, almost without question, the set piece of maybe all three films that is just an incredible achievement, both as a defense for people of Rohan and as a piece of production. But I have always loved the personal battles, and I've got to give a shout out to the fight in Moria, and particularly the fight at Amon Hen, both in Fellowship. Moria, I think, is particular because that's the first time we get to see the Fellowship fight together as one. You know, it's, it's the only time we get to see the Fellowship fight as one together. The contain, how contained that is, you know, to everybody, they're fighting in, you know, a stone box for what this is, and then the cave troll bit is great, and then there's, you get the, that triumphant moment when they are victorious in that room, and then it's to the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, and you get Howard Shore's huge bombastic fellowship theme for like the first and maybe only time it's been it's displayed like that. There, there's another shot of them walking that's not quite as grand. You've got the Balrog fight. Again, that's not a thing you've ever seen before, especially at that time. But for me, I think Amon Hen tops that just because, and this is a guy we haven't spoken of a whole lot yet too, but I love Viggo Mortensen first in that scene. Uh, he's the one that kicks it off. Uh, he lets Frodo go, as he tells Boromir later. And when he comes up the hill, it's just him looking at like a hundred Urukai. And it's just a quick, you know, sword of the forehead. And he is cutting through these guys. And it, it, all, again, it's for Frodo. It was then, and it is, into, it is to Return to the King. And then he gets bailed out by Legolas and Gimli, and that's a really impressive. It's the little bits of cool choreography that are like character specific, but also, as Dan has pointed out many a time here, just badass in so many ways. But then finally, and this is really what makes Amon Hen a, a real kick to the head, is, as referenced earlier, Boromir's death. The scene immediately preceding this, when he tries to take the ring from Frodo, is genuinely scary. You know, it's, it's trouble from within. It's here's a guy you've trusted to take you this far. 
who's, you know, helped bail you out a couple of times already through this. And he's going to take this thing from you and screw everything up. And he instantly knows what he did wrong. And the only thing he knows how to do to like reclaim his honor in this sense is to fight as hard as he can to save two of the company, to save two of his friends and Frodo's friends. That's the tragedy of Boromir. He's everything he does, I think is driven nobly. Uh, we find out, you know, he wants the ring as a weapon to just make his dad's life a little easier. You know, he, they've long as my father, the steward of Gondor kept the forces of Mordor at bay. It all comes from a good place, but he just misapplies it uh, to such, to such extremes that, you know, it, it costs him everything. But it is, that's a, a key part of Aragorn's journey too, is to acknowledge, because through to that point, he didn't want to, he doesn't want there to be a return of the king. Aragorn's happy with his exile. He hasn't embraced that journey yet. This is different from the books. Um, so to have that moment with Boromir, embracing him as a brother, talking about our people going to Gondor, that's, those scenes carry a lot of emotion away within them too. I'm not certain how to follow that because that was a master class in uh, Lord of the Rings. Knowledge and fandom and film etiquette and all that. Suffice it to say, I will, I will do a, a paltry follow-up by just mentioning two things that are among my other favorites when it comes to this trilogy. And, and these will be the last things that I say as it relates to being favorites. Um, one gave referenced, and that's Howard Shore. And for anybody who's listened to this podcast before, I don't know how deep we are right now, but I can't believe we made it this far, the four of us, without mentioning the guy that scored these three movies, because this is some of the most beautiful music ever written, and not just for film, like period. It is emotional, it is heartfelt, it is heart-wrenching at times, and particularly some of the more dramatic moments of these movies do not achieve their ultimate crescendo without the work that Howard Shore delivers. I am ashamed to admit I could not name one other movie that Howard Shore scored. Doesn't matter. Um, because I, I think he's a genius because of his work exclusively done on, on these three films. It is masterful. Gabe referenced a number of, of those key moments where he is, you know, he, he turns that fanfare loose, but it's also in more subtler moments concerning hobbits right out of the shoot. I mean, it's just that Shire theme is just incredible. And then you get to, I mean, heck, the final 30 minutes of Return of the King, there's not much dialogue spoken at all. We get a lot of reunions and we get some healing and we get, you know, Aragorn is crowned king and my friends, you bow to no one. But like beyond that, there's not much dialogue. A lot of it is Howard Shore kind of carrying us through these six, seven extended edition 12 13 endings to the movie and and i think i think his work is genius the only other thing i will mention that's a favorite of mine as it relates to these trilogies has nothing to do with the actual theatrical finished products of these movies and that is simply that i remember the moment sitting in a movie theater watching another movie and i don't know what in the hell movie that was doesn't matter with gabe and your dad Gabe and the original teaser trailer for 
Fellowship of the Ring was nothing more than that hero shot at the top of the mountain where you get to see the nine members of the Fellowship one by one. And it's, you watch the movie now and it's like, oh my God, they just, they just shot that so that that would be the teaser trip. Like that's all I see right now is, oh, that's going to be the 30 seconds we put up just to tease people about Fellowship of the Ring. And I remember when it came on the big screen, you and your dad identifying, okay, well that's, okay, well that's going to be Frodo and, and that's Samwise. And okay, well that obviously has to be Legolas. And it, for a franchise that I knew nothing about, I mean, you guys were so geeked up about it. You were so excited about it. And Fellowship came out in 2001. And so that teaser trailer would have dropped in 99 or 2000. That was 20 years ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday. So for it to be that important and that special to you guys, that was neat. And and maybe this was even before the day and age of, you know, where internet teaser trailers were, you know, kind of at the ready and, oh, don't worry, just tune into halftime of the football game tonight and you'll get your your big movie trailer. That was probably before that. So to experience that with you guys, I, I thought was really neat. I didn't know anything about the franchise. To see you that excited about it got me excited about it. Dan with one point, gunning for two, uh, coasting on nostalgia here. Uh, no, I, I well remember that too, Dan. And, um, you know, I mean, you bet we were geeking out. I'm still geeking out on this stuff. Everybody at home is really needing me to calm down about this right now and let you guys talk a little bit. <laughs> I, 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 all the points on Howard Shore are spot on. I, there's not much more to add. It's, it's such a breadth of different work, all as part of one work. It, it speaks to the elves, the dwarves, the men involved. You know what you're listening to. The sound of the Shire is as important as you know, all the bucolic beauty that it has to offer in the first place. So everything well taken there about, about Howard Shore. I know Dan said earlier that he wasn't going to mention anything from them. I, I will take just a quick moment to mention two scenes from the Hobbit trilogy that I think do belong in this conversation. And I, and I say that for a couple of reasons. I say that for one because having read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Hobbit is the book that I return to over and over and over again. Now, part of that is because it's shorter and easier to get through. Part of it is also because, as you mentioned, Gabe, it's, it's a children's story. There, there's something innocent about it. In fact, it's a book that, that I read to my son. You know, of course, he has no idea what's going on because he's just over one year old. But every Friday, we'll take some time to read that. In terms of that film, I think there are two scenes that do bear some mentioning in terms of our conversation. Uh, the first one, which was referenced quickly earlier on, was the meeting in Bilbo's house with Gandalf and the rest of the elves. In terms of the introduction of each of the elves, I just think that's really, really nice. And I also think that, you know, Martin Freeman's performance as Bilbo is not fantastic, but it's not awful. It's that... His performance as Bilbo is not what sunk those films. I'll put it that way. And then the other one, which I think is the real standout of probably all three of the films, is the riddles in the dark between Bilbo and Gollum. And I think, you know, just the, the filming of that, and, and, you know, having read it, you already know what's going to be kind of happening in there. But just the filming of that, I think, is really, really nicely done. And, and I think, you know, that whenever I... I have watched those films more often than Dan has. I think, you know, Dan, you said that you saw them once. That was enough. I think I saw them twice and that was enough. But each of the two times that I've watched that, I found myself really, really attached to that scene of the riddles in the dark and just thinking like, 
that's what this could have been. You take this and stretch it out over the course of three films, or maybe maybe not. Maybe don't stretch it out over the course of the films. Maybe you just try to put everything into one film that would have been better served by doing that. But I do think specifically Riddles in the Dark, but then also to a lesser extent, The Meeting in Bilbo's House, I think those are two two of my favorite parts of The Hobbit, and then overall in terms of the Middle Earth universe as well. My favorite part of those movies is is uh, Bilbo versus Smaug. I, I think that, you know, the, the conversation piece of that, once it starts being a battle down under the Lonely Mountain in Erebor between Smaug and the dwarves, you know, that gets ridiculous very quickly. But when it's a sort of battle of wits between Bilbo and Smaug, I, I've always liked it. That's for sure the neat thing about Bilbo is he accomplishes so much simply based on guile, effectively, just on keeping his keeping his eyes up and his head on a swivel, and, and he's able to sort of think and, and work his way through and around things. There's room for all kind of adventures in, in Middle Earth, and um, as Frodo tells Bilbo, you know, his own turned out to be quite different, and that was before he'd even done like a, a tenth of his <laughs> what end up being his full adventure. I agree, Jay. The, the Riddles in the Dark sequence is by far the best in An Unexpected Journey, which of the three movies is probably the best also, because it's the most focused. I think the dwarves, what they try to do with the dwarves is notable as well. I think it's a really compelling storyline that just didn't end up landing. I think Thorne is a really compelling character, the way they set everything up. But yeah, they, they end up pushing the dwarves into such marginal and cartoony territory by the end. They just, they lose the thread entirely. Yeah, the, the Hobbit movies are kind of Star Wars prequels of Middle Earth, unfortunately, for that comparison. But Luckily, there's all kinds of great things in uh, Middle Earth, as we know in Lord of the Rings, to carry us through the rest of this podcast. I just want to shout out his cool places. I've always loved Rivendell. I think that's such a, speaking of retirement places, I think that's a, I'd love to wander through that library for a long time. And then I'd probably vacation in Lothlorien, which seems somehow an even more peaceful, if slightly more ethereal place. A little scary, too, is Lothlorien. A lot of wild magics on, on around there. Anything else from the rest of the assembled dorks? I'll just give a quick shout out to all the uh, horse wranglers throughout the course of the uh, original trilogy. I have no idea how many horses they actually used to shoot that movie. Gabe probably knows the exact number. Uh, Suffice to say, it was many. And again, where this original trilogy really succeeds is the practical effects, that, that real feel. And I think... Gabe, you mentioned that the dwarves kind of going down that cartoony road in the Hobbit trilogy. I, I felt like that's where that trilogy really faltered. And I think the Star Wars prequel analogy is a really sound one. Pains me to make it, but there it is. Well, all right then. Moving forward, I was really just trying to stall for time while I tried to figure out who to award points to here. It's never my favorite part, but I think this time around, the points are going to Jordan. Jordan made a lot of good points, and I think he might have been the first one here to mention the world building that we've been talking about here for, for a while. And I think that, um, if I'm misremembering, I may have to reallocate the points, but I think that was Jordan. Jay's going to get the points. He gets them for Helm's Deep, and he gets them for finding at least something to defend in the Hobbit trilogy as, uh, as yeah, perhaps deservedly maligned and uh, as it has been. Riddles in the Dark is pretty much a, a perfect sequence as well. So... Congrats, Jay. Two points to you. I, I appreciate it, Gabe. I definitely had the thought about the world building. I feel like I probably said something along the lines. Although, looking at Josh, he, he he's, he's kind of making a face like, oh, I don't know. I, I feel like I said something about it. But anyway, with my two points, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy me some potatoes. What's potatoes, precious? 
sports potatoes. Gabe, next time, just throw yourself in and rid us of your stupidity. Uh, see, I'm torn there. Great reference, but that was mean. So I don't, I don't know now what to do about that. If it was you with the with the world building bit, I, I think it was. I think it was Dan actually. I think no, it was. Uh, He's got points. He's fine. Fool of moderator. <laughs> Guard of the Citadel, indeed. <laughs> this, this is the stuff. Ah, this is the stuff of the night. All right. Guys, this has been so much fun to do with you. Let's, let's charge the black gate. Let's get right down to it. And we'll start with Dan here and ask the question, because I think we've spoken to a lot that we can draw from here, but what is it that is the draw of Middle Earth? What captures you? What captured you? And what keeps you? I think what captured me initially was the adventure and the look of of these movies. You know, I, I spoke earlier about just how authentic and lived in and real these movies came across, even though they are fantasy movies. I think that's what drew me in initially. Um, I think what brings me back to Middle Earth and what brings me back again to the original Lord of the Rings trilogy are the characters and the relationships within those characters. And what I appreciate so much about these movies is that the character relationships are not dependent upon only one permutation. Um, Yes, Sam and Frodo are together for the bulk of this journey, but they start with Mary and Pippin, and then they add on more members of the Fellowship, and then the Fellowship is broken. But then later on, Gandalf ends up with Pippin, and Mary ends up with Gandalf as well, and Mary ends up with Eowyn. And you could basically take the nine members of the Fellowship and interchange them together because they all have the one common goal in mind, and that is you know, personal sacrifice in favor of the greater good, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Boy, put that on a t-shirt. I just think that the relationships are so genuine and they're so real and they can help us. And I think we see a lot of ourselves in a lot of these characters. And even maybe we hope to see some of ourselves in some of these characters. Like, you know, like you look at Aragorn and you think, my God, like I, like I hope that there's a time in my life when, when faced with some turbulence that I can lead as, as blindly but as boldly as, as he does. And, and, and my God, like I, I hope that there's a time in my life when I'm as good a friend to anyone as Sam is to Frodo. So it's, it's just, to me, it's, it's the characters and the relationships among them. And that ultimately, to me, is what that original trilogy is all about. And ultimately, that's why they are successful and, and what brings me back to these movies time and time again. I agree with Dan that the characters are what makes Miller such a great place to, to come back to, but... That the spin that I'm going to take on it is that Middle Earth is really a character of its own. That these great, you know, science fiction or fantasy stories that we love, they often have these things that are kind of like characters of their own. I'm thinking of, you know, Star Trek with the Enterprise, uh, the Millennium Falcon for for Star Wars. You know, everyone knows what I think of what I much I love Bonds DB5, but 
all the places in Middle Earth are really characters of their own because they're so fleshed out, they're so developed, um, and they're photographed so beautifully in the movie. They're described so so beautifully in the books. The Shire is probably the best example of this. It's our introduction to the the Fellowship of the Ring, and was my introduction to this world. But also, you know, the the realms of men, Gondor and Rohan. Isengard is such a cool place and really has an identity of its own. Uh, Mordor, obviously, all the mountains, the misty mountains, the, the lonely mountain, um, the, the forests. Mirkwood, I remember in the movie, is is so, you know, cartoony, as, as Gabe, you correctly put it. it. In the books, it's a fascinating section of, of the books. Um, the forests are, are all are, are all fascinating places. These places are all great characters too, and I think the way that these fantastic people characters interact with the character of their environment around them is the sort of dynamic effect that that I don't think we see in very many other stories. Josh, I think the dynamic effect that you mentioned at the end is, is where I'm going to kind of pick up with that. And, 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 you know, Dan, you mentioned kind of the look of everything and Josh, you expanded upon that a bit too. Um, For me, it's more the feel and the connection that we as an audience have with all of these places and with this universe and this world as a whole, you know, initially when I was thinking about this question, I, I, I came to the word landscape because I think, so many of the scenes, the way that they are shot, but then also the way that these settings are constructed, you know, the landscape is, you know, if you look at the Shire or Rivendell or Lothlorien or any of the forts that you mentioned, like there's something very beautiful, very poetic about them. But then also you have the darker locations and there's something complex about them as well. But ultimately the word that I came to based off that was was worldscape because I think that's really what's created here both in terms of the books and in the movies and, and, and what I find remarkable about it is that both in the movies and the books you have Middle Earth which is a place that is created to be both like mystical and familiar it's distant but it's intimate at the same time it's foreign and it's nostalgic at the same time the complexity of it is just so grand and i think that is something that we as audience members can really relate to you know i think and this you know i've talked a little bit in terms of the the actual filming of it and the the cinematography of it but the music plays into it too anytime that i hear concerning hobbits i am transported to the shire and it's something like that music relaxes me in in a way that a lot of other music doesn't. I, I can put that music on any time that I need to be soothed in some sense. And I, and I think that is something that, yes, is in large part just about the music, but is also in large part about the overall world and universe that is being created through these films and ultimately is what keeps me coming back, uh, what, what pulled me in and will keep me there for as long as we will go. Guys, it's been so much fun both listening to you talk about this and also talking at you for too long a time about various pieces of this myself. Um, it's always fun to do this with you guys, but yeah, for something this near and dear to my heart, this is 
uh, truly been a treat for me. And, and I just want to thank you guys for your thoughtful participation and for not making fun of me too much. <laughs> yes, I'm sure I'll reap it uh, in, in droves to come in future podcasts. Gabe, I, I want to know what, what the draw was for you what, what, and what continues to bring you back to Middle Earth, being the L-O-T-R fanatic that you are. I mean, all of you guys kind of hit on it in, in various ways. Dan, you said adventure. Uh, I think that's the promise of that is, is, I already said it, I think that's huge for a place like Middle Earth. Jordan, you said it, you know, with the, the feel and connection that the audience develops with Middle Earth. And, and Josh, you said it with having Middle Earth itself, even the places there, um, be a character, sort of having the, and I think it is a piece of all of that to coin Jordan's phrase of worldscape, which I'm absolutely going to steal. It's a good one. It, Middle Earth is a place created to be mystical and familiar, and that, and I just like living in a place like that, whether in my in my mind or anything else. But it was, you know, I, I read The Lord of the Rings a lot as a kid. I I think I read them as early as like eight, and almost every year until the movies through well, the years when the movies came out, and the few years after that, I was reading them almost once a year. They're very near and dear. It's some of the first fantasy and even you know literature if we want to term it that that I kind of ever consumed and it, it was just larger than life in my brain so it's um, part of my affinity for the films is just how well I think they translated the spirit of all this kind of stuff which in you know they've tried to make it before the Beatles tried to make this movie with themselves as the hobbits you know I mean imagine what we could have had before this uh, and it's not great and probably would have meant that we didn't get what we have. And I think not only is Lord of the Rings a, a remarkable story and a remarkable adaptation, but, uh, you know, in, in various other dorky ways for me, it kind of changed how movies are made a little bit. It, it showed what was possible in some other ways. We give George Lucas a lot of credit, and since uh, The Phantom Menace comes out before Fellowship of the Ring, you know, he can still retain a lot of credit for showing what's possible technologically sometimes. But um, Fellowship, I think, is in particular, is my favorite movie, but the Lord of the Rings movies as a whole, I think, are a tremendous cinematic achievement top to bottom. Everything is working in concert. I mean, we, we talk a lot about various aspects of these movies, but rarely do we, I think, refer to so many pieces of the same thing in creating the atmosphere. Maybe Star Wars is probably as close as it comes, generally speaking. I just think it's a, it's a singular and a unique story, and it gives me almost everything I need a lot of the time. It's... Uh, Whatever it is, it clicks. And since I have this long-standing history with it, there's a, a lot of nostalgic aspect for me within our family with this as well. Uh, this was something we sort of grew up doing together, and that's just uh, icing on Bilbo's cake, let's say. I don't know, something like that. Something like that, he says. It's, it's not as if he had any, <laughs> not, as, not as if he'd given it any thought through the 30-plus years of his, his existence or anything. Hey, yeah, 30 plus years of my existence, but these movies have only been around for about half that. So, uh, you know, checkmate. Which is, which is your favorite of the, of the three or, or of the six, if we're including the Hobbit films? Oh, it's Fellowship for sure. Yeah. Okay. Is, is, that, the cons- is that the consensus for the group that Fellowship is, is the superior film? See, this is a good question. This is the kind of stuff the moderator should have been doing here. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious because it was... But- I mean, Fellowship, I mean I think, Fellowship made that deep run in Dorkfest Movie Madness, lest we not yeah, forget. Was, all the yeah, way I to the final it was confirmed board. by that. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely, the, I mean, I think we've talked about it several times now. What's so great about this universe, about this worldscape, 
is the relationships and you get so much of those relationships in that initial film. And I think what was so great about these films being stretched out over, or this trilogy being stretched out over three films was that you had time for character development. You could really, you know, Dan, you mentioned the attention to detail earlier on, like you could really give everyone and everything that attention that was needed. And I think there's no film out of those three where that's better done than in Fellowship. I used to think that Return of the King was easily, like like far and away, number three of three in this trilogy. And in rewatching them recently, it's it's not anywhere near as far behind the other two as as I think I I used to believe. And and when I watched it again this time around, the thought occurred to me of the point that Gabe made about Star Trek Six about how these characters and these worlds and this is the final movie and they stick the landing. I mean, Return of the King sticks the landing. Like I don't think it's my favorite of the three, but it's awfully darn good and and we had all that build up and it really delivers on a lot of the goods. That's a good point, uh, Dan, and something that sometimes gets forgotten. I mean, I think for some, I remember seeing a like preferred fan cut online at some point where you would watch like the preferred movies to watch was like Fellowship Extended, Two Towers Extended and Theatrical Return of the King. And I made, I mentioned earlier that this was the movie that won all the Oscars and stuff like that. I do think a lot of that was kind of cumulative reward that, uh, you know, some of these bits of these movies are really good, but we're, you know, this is the last one. We're rewarding the whole thing now. It's hard to both over and us underestimate Return of the King. Um, I think the movie's also exhausting. I mean, you joked earlier about also, you know, the six endings alone that are in the theatrical cut, let alone anything else. And that is and that is a point well made. But yeah, it, I mean, everybody's just been put through the ringer by the end of Return of the King. So, I mean, it, even if it is celebratory, it takes a lot to get there. But it is, um, it, for me, it probably is three out of three. But I th- again, I think that as good as that is, you know, it just speaks again to how strong Two Towers is with what it does and, and how strong Fellowship is, I think, in it for being the one, as I think Jordan mentioned, to set all it up. Um, it has a, I think it has a special task to do in introducing this and making it stick and making it work that the other two get to sort of coast on. Return of the King is definitely three of three for me. And I, I think it is, there is that gap that Dan was saying might not be there for him. There's the bit with the ghosts, you know, soldiers that, you know, when I first watched it, I thought, oh, gee, that that's a bit convenient. And then, you know, the, the six sendings, like if there's more of the story to tell, that's fine. But I really felt jerked around by like three different fade to black moments where I thought like, okay, now the movie really is over. Oh, no way. There's more. And like, fine. Like if there's, like I said, if there's more story, then fine. Continue the movie. I just felt a little jerked around with the, with the fade to black, you know, and that's, you know, that's a choice by the editor or the director, whatever. But, you know, it's just something I didn't like, you know, personally. Gabe, if you don't mind, just one last question for you as we kind of steal the moderator's role from you. Um, in terms of the books, where does The Hobbit land for you? Now, obviously, you know, we've, we've referenced that the, the film adaptation of The Hobbit is not good. So, it, you know, it doesn't rank high in terms of field adaptation. But in terms of the book, where does that land with the, you know, in relation to the trilogy? Um, I, I have sort of a 
I have a good relationship with the story of The Hobbit because that also would have been the first one I was exposed to. In addition to what we've talked about here, there were the old um, animated versions made. I think it was, I think it was actually a Rankin-Bass um, production. I'm going I'm to confirm that. Was that the one with the theme song sung by Leonard Nimoy? No, that's, um, that's a whole other thing. The, yeah, the, the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Thank goodness. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins. Bravest little hobbit of them all. This is, this is when we get flagged for copyright. <laughs> it's going to be for the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Everything we've talked about on this podcast. Leonard Nimoy's estate. They are, they are <laughs> they're, on the they're, lookout. They're coming after us. They have the eyes of a hawk and the ears of a fox. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, The Hobbit would have been my first real foray into Middle Earth as a kid. I remember playing The Hobbit with my dad. I would, you know, take the ring on and off. He would pretend not to see me and I would run around. And, but yeah, that, that version, it's got John Huston as the voice of Gandalf and a couple other things. It's, it's, it's a good adaptation. But that was, there was that and a, uh, in addition to the animated version of The Hobbit, there's an animated version of The Lord of the Rings from Ralph Bakshi. And that was it until these things. So yeah, The Hobbit, to lengthily answer your question, definitely has a, a special place in my heart as well. I would read it alongside Lord of the Rings. I guess I always considered it as like in a, on its own pedestal. I don't think I ever really placed it on the hierarchy of, of the three books. They were all kind of just one tied together story. I just want to give one brief window here before I try and wrap things up. If there's anything we haven't mentioned in this uh, exhaustive treatise on, on Middle Earth here, uh, you know, speak now. Do not keep your forked tongues behind your teeth. We didn't mention Grima Wormtongue. He's a cool character. Josh, I'm glad you finally mentioned Isengard. You know, we didn't really get to talk too much about Saruman, but I think he's kind of a neat villain and maybe disposed of too quickly in the end, maybe a weakness, but Christopher Lee is never bad to have on board. And uh, nobody mentioned Treebeard or Fangorn. I'm as guilty as anybody there. That's the answer, a fun part of, uh, of the Two Towers saga. Gabe, right before you said that, I was going to mention Treebeard. That was... You know, that, that whole relationship between him and Mary and Pippin is such a slow-developing sort of relationship, but is also, I mean, that, that's just a, a group of scenes that I, that I love watching over and over again. And I think it plays into that mystical but familiar nature of it in that, you know, there, there's something very familiar, very natural about obviously being in a forest, but then the mystical nature of it is, is obvious, too. See, this is more John Reese Davies is never a bad thing. And notice for those following alone at home that Jordan did something very clever there in reiterating and restating his final three point question belief to try and plug those into my brain right before we go to the close here. Very, it's an excellent work. You can learn a lot. We're listening to Dorkfest, the podcast. What? What? Huh? I did something? (laughs) Oh, I actually did. (laughs) One thing I did want to bring up. Part of, um, okay, actually, the only thing I want to say, I was going to say every movie has its own little intro, and that's really cool, but really all I want to talk about is how cool is the opening scene to The Two Towers. It's flashing back to the loss of Gandalf, and then this time, as he drops, the camera falls down the chasm with him, and we get to see what actually happened there. And boy, oh boy, as much as we lauded Gandalf the White for being able to, yeah, lead some folks in battle and take matters into his own hands atop the wall when needed to, Gandalf the Grey fought a whole fire demon that's probably 15 times his size and uh, maybe didn't live to tell the tale, but neither did the other guy. That's just a striking sequence. I actually think the beginnings of all of these movies are, are very strong from the prologue to fellowship to, to that scene that you referenced. And then 
I think Return of the King gets you right away with the Smeagol Gollum ring in the in the river trick. We know that that Gollum has called Smeagol a murderer in Two Towers, but I think when we first heard that, it was like, oh, okay, he, he's he plans to murder. Oh, but no, actually, he already has has done so, and and we see that right away. So I I think these all three of these movies start off, you know, just guns a-blazing. It is just an interesting question as to, you know, with a year between films, how do you sort of, and yeah, the prologue for Fellowship makes sense, introduces to Middle-earth, that, you know, also gives us our incredibly clever opener to this particular episode. Yeah, it provides a way to sort of keep filling in the gaps and get us back into the main action without, uh, you know, keeping us thematically there. It's, they're excellent movies, and uh, I promise I'll stop talking about them soon. Um, If everybody else is good, yeah then we'll move along uh, to awarding the three points here. And, and finally, in the final analysis here, uh, I thought about trying to orchestrate a tie things. I thought of a decent trivia question, and I will ask it, but I'm going to skip all that because it's Josh. Gets the three points and takes the win. I know I made him wait for it, but he thoroughly earned it because speaking of Middle Earth as a character kind of encompassed, I think, a lot of what you guys were speaking to as well. And I think Josh just hit it most plain and simply on the head and speaking of the identity, not just of Middle Earth, but of each place and, and how it is, how they are all sort of characters unto themselves. I thought that was a really great point to make. I mean, how often does the phrase Middle Earth come up in dialogue? Probably more than even folks in Star Wars talk about the galaxy or folks in Star Trek talk about the Federation. It's gotta be up there. For recognizing Middle Earth as a character in its own right and the reason in part that we keep coming back again and again so joyously to take part in this world, Josh, three points and the victory. You are most welcome. The points are mine. My own. My precious. Uh, guys, Josh is going to try and drown us for because he won all the points. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just living my best life clutching those points to my chest as I fall backwards into the, into the, the mountain of doom. Uh, I, there's no better way to go than clutching these points. A day may come when the courage of dorks fails, but it is not this day. Well done, Josh. Congrats. And well done to everybody tonight on uh, astounding and wonderful and delightful array of quotes and references and, and analysis brought and uh, it's just been as ever such fun to do this with you guys and I hope too it has been fun to follow along at home thanks for sticking with us uh, here tonight guys and, and thank you for taking a walk a long lengthy travelogue shot with us through wandering the paths of Mirkwood seeing the Misty Mountain again visiting Lake Town although not too much since that's in The Hobbit we kind of avoided that one but again, thanks for being here, and we hope to see you next time on Dorkfest, the podcast. Carry the fate of us all, little one. If this is indeed the will of the council, then Gondor will see it done. Hey, Mr. Frodo's not going anywhere without me. No, indeed. It is hardly possible to separate you, even when he is summoned to a secret council and you are not. Wait, we're coming to... You'd have to send us home tied up in a sack to stop us. Anyway, you need people of intelligence on this sort of mission. Quest. Thing. Well, that rules you out, Pip. Nine companions. So be it.
You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Great. Where are we going? <laughs>